Um, and I just want to kind of scratch his back as he scratched mine, so to speak, uh, but not out of obligation, but really just what a joy it is to, to preach and to take the pulpit on occasion here at CTK. And um, Kevin and Tara and the Figgins family really came into my life and the life of my family in a time where we um, desperately needed some guidance, some clarity, someone who spoke the truth uh, in love and with conviction and compassion. Uh, and Kevin and Tara have been that faithfully for us now for, for some time, for several years. Um, CTK has been a gift. We were recently quarantined for a couple of Sundays uh, to start 2022 with COVID uh, kind of running through our family. And, and I can just tell you, um, just as my stomach growls when I don't get food, uh, my soul was kind of growling and, and in this really sour, bad spot when I was out of the context of the body of Christ. And so I uh, just want to say what a gift it is. We, we believe that wholeheartedly uh, as we come to gather together as the people of God around the Word of God. Uh, and we love this church. We're grateful for, for Kevin and for Tara and their leadership here as well, and, and for each one of you who um, has taken a seat this morning to join us for worship. So um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, and so as Kevin said, my name is Hunter. If you don't know me, there are a lot of uh, new faces, at least for me in the crowd. And so if this is terrible, I'm the B team. Okay, so, so come back uh, when Kevin's taking the pulpit next week, and hopefully you can be encouraged. Um, and then maybe just one more disclaimer. I do realize with the, with the class kicking off this morning, um, some of you guys are like really overstretched in your traditional capacity to intake maybe information and to kind of apply your minds. This is like a two-a-day, right? And you're just used to like, we'll, we'll run through practice on Thursday and we're going to, to get IHOP or something. And so I just want to say, try and be patient. Um, we will pray for that, but, but just that your minds would... Uh, be fixed on the Word of God and that we would see God in His glory. And, and in seeing God in His glory, how could we not help but love Him? So, uh, with that being said, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. We're going to read the whole thing. Uh, but before we do, as you're turning there, can we pray? Father, we just admit collectively... Lord, even right now in our minds and our hearts as we open your word. Lord, two things. First, that it is a gift. God, that we too come empty-handed to a God that is in need of nothing from us. Lord, we can add nothing to your glory. We can add nothing to your worth or to your holiness. Lord, and we are a weak and feeble people. And so we ask, Lord, with Paul, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold you in your temple, high and lifted up, Lord, and the refrain of our heart would be, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, I ask now that, uh, Lord, in a room this size with this many people, no doubt, God, there are distractions uh, just abounding, Lord, internally and externally. Lord, and as a parent of young children, I just get the image of maybe uh, walking into a room and it is a disaster. There's just toys everywhere. The beds aren't made. There's clothes on the ground. It is a, it's a wreck scene. Lord, but you are not a God who commands us to pick up the room and you'll come back in five minutes. You are a God who gets down in the middle of our mess and who cleans it up with us and loves us through it. And so I ask, Lord, that you would maybe clear cluttered pathways in our mind this morning. Lord, that maybe you would uh, gently remove distractions, that we might see you, and we might love you, and we might obey you, and therefore we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, Genesis chapter 16, we'll start with verse 1. As I said, we're going to read the whole thing, so just hang in there. It says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I should obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahoroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, so there's two major movements in the text this morning. Those will serve as the first two points uh, for this morning's sermon. The third point, the last point, is actually going to come from Galatians chapter 4. It's what Bonnie read to us earlier. Uh, and it's basically Paul's exegesis of this text, of Genesis chapter 16. And so our three points uh, this morning are as follows, if you're taking notes. You'll also find them in the worship guide. So point number one is our mess, our mess, O-U-R, our mess, it's a sight word for my son. Uh, point number two is God's mercy, God's mercy, and then lastly we'll look at the freedom of the found, the freedom of the found. All right, so if you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abram three things, right? He kind of promised him two things, the third was kind of an outcome, if you will, but he promised him land. He promised him offspring, and he promised to bless the world through Abram. So that's Genesis chapter 12. That's kind of the launching pad for Abram's story. So we kicked off in the new year. And as recently as last week in chapter 15, God kind of renewed this covenant, right? He kind of teased it out a little bit more. And again, promising him land and offspring. And then he kind of hands the deed of this land over to Abram in chapter 15. He's like, hey, this is, this is your land. There's some kinks to be worked out there for sure. But Abram can see this land. He's standing on it. He can put a, a, you know, Old Testament version of a shovel in it. He can build a house or whatever it is on it. And so he's on this land. It's, it's physical. It's, it's tangible. It's real. Right? But they walk into uh, chapter 16, Abram and Sarai. They're walking into Genesis 16 with one half of God's promise uh, on board. Right? It's been fulfilled. 
But there is no sign of the other half. And there's no expected date of delivery on this child of promise. And verse 3 just told us that at this point in the story, they've been in this land for 10 years, right? So Canaan feels like home. They're kind of done with the remodel. The nursery's been decorated. They probably got some names picked out for this baby, but yet there is no pregnancy. There's no bump in Sarai's belly. There is no baby to be seen. And I imagine as the days become months and the months become years and the years become a decade, the hope that they once had feels more like a pipe dream than it ever would a reality. And so Abram and Sarai find themselves somewhere between promise given and promise fulfilled. And in an almost understandable act of impatience, they gently kind of just cut God off They say, thanks so much, God, for all you've done, but we can take it from here. We'll kind of handle the rest on our own. If you actually read in the text verses 1 or 2 maybe, Sarai actually blames God for her lack of her pregnancy. Right? She's blame-shifting, and so she starts to justify. Chapter 16 is essentially one giant interruption in the plot line of God's promise. It is man's attempt to fulfill what God said he would do himself. In fact, the last sentence in chapter 15 ends with God acting. God gives this land to Abram. And then the first sentence in chapter 17 begins with God acting. God visits Abram. So chapter 16 is bookended with God acting on man's behalf. But in chapter 16 itself, there is no mention of direct activity from the Lord whatsoever. We see the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord appear, depending on your translation. So we know that God is present, right? He's not passive, he's not sleeping, he's not on some extended sabbatical. But not once does it mention God directly acting as he has and as he will in the passages surrounding this one. And so for Abram and Sarai, God essentially, or at least experientially, has been silent for some time now. And frankly, they're tired of waiting. And so they take it upon themselves to help God deliver on his promise. And notice here that the development of sin in chapter 16 is exactly the same as it was back in Genesis chapter 3, in the fall. This story, chapter 16, it reads like the fall 2.0. Right? So this is just kind of conjecture here. This is not exegesis. This is not from a commentary. This is just from my head on a treadmill on Thursday morning this week. But part of me wonders, if the original sin committed in the garden wasn't that Adam and Eve listened to and obeyed the voice of the serpent, but that they got ahead of God in the garden. They exposed themselves to voices other than God's and desires with with people's desires who were different than God's. Desires not for their flourishing, but for their destruction. Because that's essentially what Abram and Sarai are doing here. They are running ahead of God in the plot line of their lives and in the larger story of God. And so you have the woman, and this is not to pick on the woman, Right? Abram had his moment back in chapter 12. He'll have hiccups along the way. But you have the woman here in chapter 16 no longer listening to and trusting the words of God, but rather she begins to listen to and trust the words of the enemy, the words of her flesh, the words that speak the language of doubt, deceit, and disbelief. And suddenly Sarai starts to think, hey, maybe I'm the problem here. Right? God made a promise to Abram. But he never mentioned me. Maybe the fine text somewhere, there's something along the lines that I'm not included in this plan. He never said I would be the mother to this offspring. After all, we've been in the promised land for 10 years and I'm not getting any younger. 
And just as Adam failed to speak truths in, uh, in Eve's moment of weakness, Abram failed to do the same for his wife. In fact, uh, for a male patriarch in the Old Testament, Abram is uncharacteristically passive throughout this entire chapter. He just kind of goes along with Sarai's plans because it's easier than causing a conflict, right? And it even makes a bit of sense. And actually, culturally, this was somewhat commonplace. It was acceptable for Hagar to kind of serve as a uh, surrogate mother for her master. And so they set this plan in motion. They create the world's first uh, version of a love triangle. It's complicated, right? Hagar gets pregnant. It looks like the second half of this promise might start to be fulfilled. Except that Sarah, uh, Sarai is now jealous, and Hagar, the mistress, is looking down on her master. And you have to remember that in those days, a woman's worth was largely wrapped up in her womb. Right? Her value was defined by how many children she could bear into the world, which means that Sarai is about as good as a chicken that won't lay eggs. Right? She's old, she's seemingly barren. For all they know, Hagar is carrying the child of promise. And so Sarai's solution to this cosmic promise uh, has backfired, and she's left feeling obsolete in its wake. And all of this, all of this is a product clearly of sin, but more specifically, it's a product of pride. It all started with a single seed of doubt, which is exactly how it started back in the garden. And while doubt itself isn't a sin, okay, just caveat there, doubt itself is not a sin. We all have doubts, no doubt. But what it is when it becomes sin is when we become the interpreter of those doubts. Right? When we decide we can handle our doubts, we can interpret our doubts, we're essentially saying, I know what is best for me, and I trust myself to get me there. The scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud, but the reason God opposes the proud is because the heart of pride is in direct opposition to God. Right? Pride is opposed to God. Um, pride is opposed to God because pride is opposed to any authority that is outside of itself. You could say pride um, or submission is not in the repertoire of pride. Pride says, I know better than you do, God. I can do better than you can, God. And I don't really need you, God, because I'm a better God for me than you are. And so thank you for the gesture, but I can govern my life just fine without you. And while we may not like to admit it, the truth is that this sort of pride resides in you and in me. And it's just as present today as it was in Genesis chapter 16. And so I think a good question to ask ourselves is, what are the promises of God that I'm tempted to bring about on my own? Maybe a better question might be, hey, where am I tempted to get ahead of God in governing my own life? So maybe you're single in here this morning, and man, honestly, you just want a spouse. It's a good thing, is it not? The scriptures tell us that. And so maybe you're tempted to settle where God says, you should wait for the one I have for you. Or maybe singleness is what I have for you. Maybe you're married in here, and you've been married for some time. Or maybe you've, you've, you're a newlywed, but you have just always dreamed of being a parent. Right? And yet there's no baby to be found. It's been six months, it's been a year, things are difficult, you're talking to doctors, you're looking at options, and it seems like all you want is a baby. Right? And there are plenty to go around that are unwanted. Why can't we, of all people, get pregnant? Or maybe you're in the throes of midlife and parenting and you desperately want to see some fruit on the vine in your children. Or maybe yourself, I know I'm there often at times. But today, again, it feels like Groundhog Day and we've got six more weeks of winter. Or maybe you're stuck in a job you don't want. And just as Kevin prayed uh, for vocation, you are ready to turn the page in your career. 
But God's not done yet. Right? There's an ellipsis, there's a cause, there's a, palm, uh, a comma, but God's not providing you with the job that you want. But the question is, where do we get tempted to get ahead of God in living our lives? And I think this question leads to one obvious application, and it's this. It's that so we have to be a people who center our lives around the Word of God. Because only in the Scriptures do we learn to distinguish the promises of God from our kind of evangelical Amazon wish list. Right? We may want lots of good things, but that doesn't make it God's will for our lives, and it doesn't mean it's God's way for our lives. So we need to be well acquainted with the Word of God so that we can be well acquainted with the heart of God so that we can be a people of patience who hold out hope in the promises of God. Getting back to our story, Sarai and Abram choose the way of sin and pride, and they are quickly followed by blame and shame as they always are. Right, And all of that, is directed at Hagar, this Egyptian servant. Things get so bad for Hagar at this point, the only viable option she sees is to flee, right? Is to flee her situation, to flee her owners, to flee her lifestyle and all of uh, life, all that she knows, which brings us to our second point, and that's where we'll witness God's mercy. God's mercy, and specifically as he ministers to Hagar in the middle of this mess. So prior to Genesis 16, we know absolutely nothing about Hagar. The scholars tell us that uh, Hagar was an Egyptian slave. She was a maidservant. She was kind of the right-hand woman to Sarai, if you will. And she was acquired by Abram during Abram's time in Egypt. So back in chapter 12, kind of the last part of chapter 12, if you remember uh, from, I don't know, two months ago, maybe not that long, what, six weeks ago, Kevin? Yeah, Abram's in Egypt, goes down to Egypt, uh, makes some suppositions and some assumptions. Things go badly, but he's in Egypt for a stint. And it's thought that this is when they acquired Hagar. And verse 7 says this, that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. I'm sure she was thirsty. Sorry. Sorry. I told myself not to say that. Um, Okay, but commentators say that Hagar was probably traveling on a somewhat common trading route. Right? And she gets to this place called Shur. It's en route to Egypt. She's headed for, for home, right? all she's missed. But as the text says, she is in the wilderness. And this is not like a tree stand somewhere in the middle of like wooded area. There's Bambi, there's deers. This is not that kind of wilderness as we think of in Georgia. Right? This is the desert. Right? And Shur is still 150 miles, scholars say, from Egypt and any sort of known civilization. And so, uh, considering that Hagar is pregnant, right, she's with child and she is on foot, commentators agree that if it wasn't for this messenger visiting Hagar, she was probably headed to her death. Which means that Hagar's physical reality also serves as a spiritual analogy, as the God of the Bible offers her a source of life and a way out in the middle of her desert of death. So I just kind of want to walk through this interaction and this exchange here between this messenger of the Lord and Hagar because there is much to see and there is a whole lot of mercy that God is going to uh, just lavish on Hagar. So first, notice the messenger's question to Hagar. Right, Hagar's in the middle of a desert with a bump in the belly and seemingly um, out of nowhere, this messenger, this angel appears to Hagar and he asks a very legitimate question. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? So this is a question of location. And it's a question that brings Hagar to awareness, right? It brings her to an awareness of herself, 
But it also brings her to an awareness of her journey and her story in the larger plot line of God. Uh, The messenger, if you will, is kind of asking Hagar to zoom out a bit on the lens by which she sees her life. And here's the thing about this question. This question isn't so much for this messenger as it is for Hagar. Right, so going back to Genesis 3 once again, this question is akin to the question God asked of Adam after Adam sins in the garden. Right, so if you remember Adam and Eve sin, they hide, they're naked and ashamed. God comes meandering through the garden, and his question to Adam is, Adam, where are you? The question is not for God. God knows where Adam is. God asked this question of Adam because he wants Adam to realize where Adam is. He wants him to realize he is estranged from God and he is estranged from his helpmate, right? That the one have become two and he's enslaved to sin and shame. And this is exactly what this messenger wants Hagar to realize as well. He's asking Hagar to slow down, take some inventory. What is going on? Come to awareness and consider what's unfolding around her. And as believers... And even as humans, this is a question that is always applicable. Author John O'Donohue writes, At any point in time, you can ask yourself, At what threshold am I now standing? What am I leaving? And where am I going? And so I just ask you this, maybe this week, maybe today even, maybe not now during the sermon hopefully, um, but later today and with your MC later, just ask the question, hey, where am I? Like, where, where does God have me? What am I leaving? Where am I going? And is it where I'm intending to go? Or for the believer, maybe a better question is, is this where the Lord is leading me? Is this, is this where Jesus is going? Is this the way of the cross and the gospel? Because the truth is, we are always going somewhere. It's just a matter of where. And if we are not actively and intentionally following after Jesus, we are passively following Satan. As D.A. Carson puts it, nobody drifts towards godliness. Right? It's like nobody ever drifted and meandered their way into a Ph.D. I just took some classes, didn't really want to pick a major, and they gave me like three letters after my name. That's cool. Never happens, right? So we must intentionally be following Jesus. Where are you going, Hagar? Where have you come from? Now look at what uh, Hagar says in response to this. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The word mistress there in the Hebrew doesn't just mean she slept with uh, Sarai's husband, although she did. Uh, Quite literally, that means that that Sarai is Hagar's master. It's essentially uh, Hagar admitting that Sarai is my queen, right? As unpolitically correct as it sounds in 2022, Sarai owns Hagar. That's what Hagar is admitting with this statement here. And it's part of why the messenger instructs Hagar to return to her master, right? This is the messenger calling for Hagar to repent. And while this may sound really harsh for us and somewhat confusing from the mouth of the messenger of the Lord to go back to to an owner who is mistreating a slave, The truth is that while Hagar may have been a victim of her circumstances, she is not a victim to her response to those circumstances. She is very much responsible for her response to those circumstances. And so this messenger is calling Hagar to take ownership of her sin, to repent from her sin, and to obey the word of the Lord. But he does this by way of a profoundly personal encounter. Look with me next at verses 10 through 12. The messenger tells Hagar this. 
He says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now I admit, this may not sound like the best news in the world, specifically chapter or verse 12, but for Hagar, these words were life-altering. You could go so far as to say that for Hagar, she had two halves of life. There was the half of life before this encounter and the half of life after this encounter. And the reason this encounter was so impactful for Hagar was because this was an encounter of identity. So God explicitly gives Hagar's child an identity. He calls him Ishmael. That's what his name should be. Uh, Because it means God saw her in her affliction, which I think is just really cool because it means every time that Hagar is going to say the name Ishmael to her son or she hears someone else call her son, she is reminded of the fact that at the lowest point of her life, when not even her owners were looking for her, even then God saw her. God had compassion on her. God visited her and he loved her. And so not only was uh, God giving uh, Ishmael an identity here, he was giving Hagar one as well. He was giving Hagar an identity outside of her womb and outside of her wound, and he was restoring her worth as a child of God. See, for God, he saw Hagar Hagar as more than just a slave or a surrogate. He saw a wayward child looking for a place to belong, looking for a place to come home. And in a desert all alone with nowhere to hide and no one to be, God looks on her and he loves her. This was Hagar's moment of conversion, but it was also her moment of calling. And out of this encounter, out of this moment, she turns right around, she repents, and she goes back into the source of her greatest pain. Right? And how could she not? At this point, how could Hagar continue to trek towards Egypt with its idols when she had met with a God who was not only real, but who was personal and who was powerful? So this was not just uh, the God of Abram anymore or the God of Sarai. This was the God of Hagar as well. And commentators agree this was no ordinary angel who visited Hagar in the desert. This is what theologians call a Christophany. A Christophany. It's kind of a Christian vocab word for you if you want. But it just basically means the pre-incarnate Christ making a temporary appearance for a specific purpose in the Old Testament. So Jesus does this multiple times in the Old Testament, but this is the first occasion, right? And what's staggering is that up to this point, you would be uh, hard-pressed to find a less deserving character in the Genesis narrative for Christ to come to than Hagar, right? Most of the characters we've looked at have been uh, biblical patriarchs or fathers of the faith. But in Hagar, Jesus is setting the standard for exactly the kind of people he loves to minister to. Right? As you may remember, Hagar won't be the only woman Jesus encounters at a lonely well in a lifeless desert. He'll do it again in the New Testament. And so Hagar serves, uh, serves as this sort of spiritual placeholder for all of us. And for the believer, her story is our story. Right? Because at one time, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, if you're a Christian, found ourselves hopeless, isolated, and enslaved, and running away from our reality in our own desert of death. And even then, Christ came. In the middle of our mess, Jesus offered us his mercy as well. As Romans 5 reminds us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so my encouragement to you this morning, if you're a believer, would simply be to do what Hagar did with this well. It would be to mark your well and to remember it well. It would be to recount and remember often the ways in which God found you and to praise Him for His mercy in the middle of your mess. Lastly, uh, lastly, as we close, let's look at the freedom of the found. The freedom of the found. So flip to Galatians chapter 4 if you have your Bible. You could just ask Bonnie to come up and read again. You need to get some of children's books recorded in her voice or something and start selling them or putting them on Spotify. <laughs> um, so while you're flipping there, just for some context, this is Paul's letter to the Galatians. So Paul is writing to a uh, Gentile church with Gentile believers. These are people that, who never had the law to begin with. So in the Old Testament, God gives the law to his people, the Hebrews. These people, these Gentiles, the believers here uh, in Galatia, this church, they were never under this law. Right? But they have forsaken the biblical gospel by which they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they have started to follow a false gospel of justification by works. They're essentially adding to the gospel of God's grace. This is a Jesus plus gospel. And what Paul says here in his letter is this is absolutely no gospel at all. Like you can't just kind of add, this is not a combo meal at McDonald's you can just kind of add to the plate. You've changed the whole thing. Right? And so Paul here in his letter, letter to the Galatians is using Genesis 16 and the juxtaposition between Sarai and Hagar to show the Galatians the error of their ways and to exhort them to repent and believe once again in the gospel of God's grace. Paul says this starting in verse 21. We'll read through verse 31. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, and one by a free woman, this will be Isaac. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, still under the law. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother, right? So the gospel, righteousness through faith, passive righteousness. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So Paul said it there in verse 24. But he's using Genesis 16 here, the story of Sarai and Hagar, as an allegory to speak to the two ways that sinful men seek to be justified before a holy God. Right. So in the context of, of, of Galatians chapter 4, and in our context this morning, we have this holy God who is set apart, right? who is very much other than us. We sang it this morning, God, there is no one like you. And we have this giant chasm that we've created with our sin, between this holy God and all of us, right, with sinful natures. And we've got to do something with this chasm. It calls for reconciliation. It calls to be closed. And there's two ways to do that, Paul says. You can either do it through the law, 
which is essentially just the gospel of, of behavioral modification. Call it what you want to. It looks a little bit different for us now. But the, the, the idea is we've got to earn our way back. Right? The other way is that we do it through faith. And, and these two ways of getting back to God, or maybe the second way is God coming to us, right? This is the gospel, are represented by Sarai and by Hagar. And so the law is represented by Hagar and with her son Ishmael. And then the way of faith is represented by Sarai and her son Isaac. And what Paul is pointing to here is that these two ways back to God, faith and works, represent warring realities and they produce contrasting results. They, they don't run along the same lines. They go in completely opposite directions. And so we, when, we go, when we go the way of the flesh, which is what we're attempting uh, to do when we try and do God's work our way, this is Abram and Sarai saying, hey, let's do it through Hagar, a la uh, Genesis 16. The result, Paul says, is an illegitimate child. We produce slaves, not sons. And rather than finding freedom through the law, we actually become slaves to the very law we look to to free us. And when we try and justify ourselves in this way, it only serves to reveal to us that we have fundamentally misunderstood the point of the law in the first place. Right? The law was never given to free us from our sins. The law was to point out we can never keep the law. That was the point of the law. And so we need somebody else to keep the law for us, which is where Jesus comes in. This is why the gospel is good news, which brings us to Sarai, or Sarah as Paul puts it. So the opposite of justification by works or the gospel of behavioral modification, isn't apathy, right? The opposite of saying, I'm going to work my way to God, is not to just say, laissez-faire, I'm not even going to get dressed today. Like, who needs, you know, anything? I'm just going to, not even going to try. The opposite of justification by works is faith in the uh, person and work of Jesus Christ. And so rather than trying to work our way to righteousness, the gospel lets us rest our way into righteousness, on behalf of Christ's righteousness for us. Rather than having to justify ourselves, the gospel says that God, who was once your judge, will now actually be your justifier. He will fulfill the promises that He made to you in the first place. God is faithful. And what Paul is saying here is it is the latter, not the former, that is the only means of justification that actually accomplishes what it sets out to do. Because justification cannot be achieved by works. It can only be received by faith. And this is the freedom of the found. It's the freedom to not have to justify yourself. To not have to constantly be worrying, have I done enough? Am I enough? Will I ever be enough? See, the gospel is good news precisely and somewhat ironically because it lets us uh, relax into the reality that we are not good enough. And we never will be. But Jesus Christ is. And that by faith, as Paul says, God has found a way to be both just and the justifier for all those who place their faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a good and gracious gospel you have given us. Would I pray today, just as you located Hagar in the desert, that you would find us, Lord, wherever we sit, wherever we stand today, Lord, would you find us with the good news of your gospel and would you call us back, Lord, into hard places. Lord, you call us uh, not to a paradise right now, but you call us to carry a cross. 
And so would you equip us for the work of discipleship? Would you help us look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ? And would you glorify yourself through us in the world? In Christ's name, amen.